Jill Mott. How's it going? I'm hanging in there. I'm doing all right. How are you, Emily Reese? I am good. I'm good. I'm excited to talk more about Japan. Last time I talked about, like, Japanese composers who were influenced by Western music and therefore wrote orchestral music, things like that. Today it's kind of the other way around. We're going to talk about Japanese instruments and then a few compositions, because there are many that were influenced by Japanese music and culture. So, yeah. Do you like miso ramen? Ramen made with miso? I... Yes, I've I've had the pleasure of having that so few times in my life, but every time I have it, I do love some good ramen. Okay, so ramen miso hails from the same place as the beer Sapporo in Ooh. northern Japan. The really? birthplace of miso ramen wow. is Hokkaido, northern Japan. Amazing. I know. I thought that was kind of a cool little little fun fact. It is, because I love Sapporo. That's a delicious brew. My, my good friends know, and probably most of my family, that I get a little bit red-red, right? I say that in homage to my little niece, who her favorite color is red, so then everything needs... It's like red glasses, red, red, just all on the mind, got to yeah. do it. Yeah. I've just lately been into all things Japan. I've been like watching Midnight Diner. I that love show, That yeah. Netflix show is so great. Yeah. I think I turned you on to it because now don't you watch it sometimes? I do occasionally watch it. I'm I'm behind you, I believe. But yeah, I, I've enjoyed it because it's not the norm. You know, it's just a different way to have a, a sitcom, even though from what I understand, it comes from manga, which is awesome. Yeah, the, the illustrator, the writer of the manga, Yaro Abe, yeah. is that his name? Yaro Abe, something like that? Yeah. Um, was, it's cool because I guess it was turned into a a Japanese series, a TV series. It's been done in China. I think it's been done in Korea, but to not very good results or something or Hmm. or praise. But I just love how it's shot. I think it's so much different than a typical American TV series or British. But it's also like the character development. Like you get latched onto these characters within two episodes. I just think it's really great. And then there's the... The food element that I, you know, that to me, that ties me to a show quite easily in a way that like Bridgerton does not, you know. (laughs) Yeah, no, I've enjoyed that series for sure. And uh, because you have been so focused on Japan, so have I on this podcast. (laughs) 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 Emily, I'm really obsessed with this. Let's do this for an episode. Let's Japan. Let's, can we Japan? How about Japan? I'm like, what? Japan? Yeah, Japan. And okay. Then, and then you actually have started saying red, red? Yeah. <laughs> like you've started yeah. to learn the... I was like yes. counting in Japanese and... <laughs> there yeah. is... We may be doing a natural wine uh, Japan episode as well. I was going to tie that into today, but that would just be too much. I'm going to yeah. talk about craft beer and bigger brand Japanese, famous Japanese breweries on today's show because beer is 
really a central part of Japanese drinking culture, as is soshu and sake and stuff like that. But beer is very important in the culture, especially when friends are like starting out their night or they're having a toast when everybody's getting together. A lot of times that starts off with everybody sharing. Sometimes it's like a bigger bottle, but sharing a toast over beer, which is cool. Yeah. No, that sounds amazing. Well, do we drink first or do we music first? I know. What yeah. a question. Well, I'm going to, I want to get a little bit into why beer culture even exists in Japan and talk about these big brands before we drink a big brand beer, if that's cool. Yeah. Beer came to Japan via Dutch traders quite a few centuries ago, actually back in the 17th century. And the first documented brewery in Japan for local consumption was set up by an American which is kind of surprising, William Copeland. And it's called, uh, it was called Spring Valley Brewing. This is way back in 1870. And that's kind of funny because one of the big top five breweries, Kiri Ichiban, or Kirin Ichiban, excuse me, Kirin, they actually, you know, they're trying to compete with the microbreweries that are happening. So they actually have this small little entity called Spring Valley Brewing because, you know, obviously that same brewery from 1870 doesn't exist anymore. Okay. Um, And so they're trying to compete with the microbreweries, but I digress. Yeah. Because I fast-forwarded pretty quickly. (laughs) The Japanese beer culture is dominated by five breweries. Sapporo, which we'll taste and talk about in a moment. Asahi, which Asahi was one of my favorites for the longest time. I've kind of grown out of my Asahi phase, but that's (laughs) what I drank when I was hanging out in Osaka a long time ago. Almost 40% of sales by volume in country is Asahi, which is, that's like flipping wow. an absurd amount of beer. You've got Kirin, you've got Orion, which I don't see here. I don't even know if it's exported to the States, and Suntory, which I've had there, and I don't really remember much about it other being like kind of the light and okay. cheap and cheerful beer. And so those are the big ones. Those are the big ones, yep. Asahi makes more than 100 million cases a year. Whoa. Of beer. And so over the past 25 years, if you add up how they've grown, they've brewed over 3.4 billion cases of Asahi. <laughs> and they now own Pilsner Urkel. So one of the Whoa. one of the main issues with a lot of breweries in the world are that some people kind of think, oh, I'm gonna go to the Czech Republic, I'm gonna drink some Pilsner Urkel. Oh, I'm gonna go to Dublin and I'm gonna drink some Guinness. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, they are tried and trues, and yes, they are symbols of their culture and local drinking, right? But in the end, that a lot of them are owned by multinational yeah. Yeah. corporations. Like Budweiser nowadays. and stuff. Yeah, yeah Anheuser-Busch, mm-hmm. etc. But of the big five, though, the one we'll drink, Sapporo, mm-hmm. they claim to be the country's first beer, quote-unquote, brand okay. um, back in 1876. And we'll talk more about Sapporo in a moment because I want to be Yum. romanced by some Japanese classical instruments, please. <laughs> Yes, so Japan and, you know, Eastern music and Western music are very different things. So, uh, you know, even within countries in the West, there are instruments that are indigenous to certain countries. And the same, of course, is true for Eastern music. So that, you know, old-timey instruments of India aren't the same as the old-timey instruments of Japan, let's say. With Japan... Many, 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 many musical instruments came to them from China, Korea, uh, just through that kind of trade and travel. And even the national instrument of Japan, which is the koto, is a descendant of a Chinese instrument. 
Hmm. A koto, which is what we're going to talk about first. We're going to talk about three instruments today. Oh, you know what we should actually talk about first? What? Tell everybody to thank you for listening to Scores and Pours, a podcast where you can learn about classical music and wine, or beer in this case. Yeah, that's what we do here. Hosted by me, sommelier Jill Mott, and radio host Emily Reese. Well, yes. Uh, Today, you know, part two of Japan, little Japanese tour of some music and brews. And if you want, you can hit us up on Instagram. That'd be great. If you've got some show ideas, we're at Scores and Pours. And you could uh, send us a DM or just love all our posts. We'd love that. Another thing, too, to thank all of our existing patrons for keeping this show going because we couldn't do this without you guys. We love you guys so much and gals and theys. You support us via tiers, which is really cool. Um, We have a really easy tier system that makes it pretty simple for you to decide what level best works for you. In every case, you get patron-only content. We have recipes and wine or sake or beer pairings, and we have classical and jazz to match Mm -hmm. uh, with all those. So that's really cool. And for those of you that can't afford it at this time, then consider this a free podcast and enjoy it. Indeed. One of my favorite things that we have is the Scores and Pours Corkscrew. You can always learn more about that on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash scores and pours. Plenty of merch. As you were saying. Yeah, the Koto. The Koto. (laughs) As you were saying. (laughs) (laughs) The Koto is a zither. So what that means is that... A zither? A zither. It's a type of instrument. Like hither and thither and zither? What? Mm, No. Okay. Yeah. Nice try, though. I was was working on that one. Yeah. Uh, Zither is an instrument. So if you think of like a brass, it's a class of instruments, like a brass instrument or like a lute. Yeah. Or something. A zither is a stringed instrument, but it's the strings are as long as the sound box. So picture a guitar where the body of the gu- guitar, the mm. resonating part of the guitar, the strings stretch well beyond that, all the way down the neck, right? On a zither-type instrument, that box, the resonating chamber, runs the full length of the strings. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. So a koto has 13 strings, they also can have 17 now, although that was a 20th century invention. But a traditional koto has 13 strings, and they are silk, which is awesome. And the right hand, you sit with the zither. Well, first of all, they're pretty long. They're almost six feet long, So, and it's longer than it is wide. So you sit in front of almost perpendicular to it as it's laid out before you. And uh, each string, each of the 13 strings has its own bridge and they're movable. So you can move those bridges. Like if you think of a bridge on a violin, that's what holds the strings up. Yep. Guitars have bridges too. They're just way down at the, um, by the sound hole is where a guitar's bridge is. So, and those bridges elevate the strings above whatever they're stretched across, right? So these bridges on the koto are movable Therefore, you can change the tuning of the koto. Okay. So do we have an image that you like that we can show people? Absolutely. Cool. Yes. It'll be, it'll be on our Patreon page. Check it out on this post. Totally. And we're going to hear it right now. And while we're listening to it, I'll explain to you how it's being played. Okay. Yeah.
I've heard this. Do, do. Yep. I, I love this, A, this song I love, and I love this instrument. This is one of the most famous compositions for Koto. And here's the cool thing. This is so cool about Koto. Dude, I bought a, a used disc with this on it when I was like in seventh grade. And nice. it was like one of my favorites. And of course, when I was like driving around and I got my license and had this in my little CD player and my <laughs> friends were like, really? That's where we're going to go like pick up the dudes and like go to the movies and listen to this? Yeah. I was like, yes. Yeah. That's exactly what's going to happen. That's amazing. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. Not at all. This is a piece called Rokudan no Shirabe. And do you hear how the notes bend sometimes? Yep. That is done with the left hand. Okay. The left like kind hand, of pushing on it a little? Yep, to the left of the bridge. So the right yep. hand is plucking to the right of the bridge. And the right hand, if you have seen a banjo player, how they have picks wrapped around yep. their fingers, same is true for Koto. They're wearing three picks, index finger, middle finger, and thumb on their right hand. And then the left hand, also in modern Koto music, can strum but generally is the one manipulating the uh, tuning of the string uh, to the left of the bridge with the left hand. This piece like I said, is one of the most famous pieces written for Koto, and it was written by the person who brought the Koto to the general public, because for a thousand years, Koto was only heard at the palace. It was not for commoners. Mm. And there was a Koto player in an ensemble, in a palace music uh, ensemble, who had a blind friend who played an instrument we're going to talk about later called the shamisen. And this koto player taught koto to the shamisen player. And then the shamisen player started playing koto for the general public. And that didn't happen until like 1700 something. Wow. So a thousand years, the koto was locked behind the walls. And a lot of music was like that. There is Japanese court music, a style of Japanese classical music called gagaku, and that is where the koto comes from. So we're going to talk more about gagaku and other instruments in the gagaku ensembles as the episode goes on. But yeah, it's pretty cool. Can Thank we let this music go on just a quick little second longer? Yeah, and I want to tell you the is name koto of the... K-O-T-O? Yep. Okay. Yep, K-O-T-O. And I, I want to tell you the man's name too. The blind musician was na is named Yatsuhashi Kengyo. And he's known as like the father of Koto music. And he, this is one of his compositions. I mean, why aren't we waking up listening to this every day, humans? <laughs> like, let's just have this make everybody calm. Way to start your day. Another not laying on the horn, yeah. not smoking cigarettes in your car, going 85 miles an hour, <laughs> getting in accidents. And like, yeah, you know, just let's listen to this. Five minutes early. Wake up five minutes earlier and put this on. Yeah. This is also a variant of a pentatonic scale that we talked about in our pentatonic episode. This is just a Japanese version of the scales that we talked about. 
Any other questions about the Koto? No, are you ready to drink some Sapporo? Yeah. That's music to our ears. Yep. Cheers. To scores and pours. To scores and pours. And to Seibel or Seibel Nakagawa. I'll tell you who he is in a fine moment. Yum. Easy drinking. Maybe some additives, but we won't talk about that. <laughs> Seibel Nakagawa, he left Japan at the young age of 17 and traveled to Europe. Now, this was at a time when Japan was in an isolationist situation in the 1800s, late 1800s. And if he would have been caught, he for sure would have been sent to jail. People weren't let out or in the country as easily. But he went there and he learned the art of brewing and especially clean German lagering style of brewing, which was very popular um, in the mid-19th century. And he came back to Japan and Sapporo was originally going to be like in and around Tokyo somewhere. And I think it was, wasn't really going to be a brewery necessarily. I mean, there was going to be beer involved, but it was going to be something else. And he convinced the company, he was going to be like their chief engineer. And he told people, I'm from the area of Sapporo in Northern Japan. I think this would be great for the community, but also ice was available up there like it wasn't in Tokyo. And if we think of you know, ice, we just take for granted that we have ice available. Yeah. Ice was like a hot commodity, you know, you couldn't yep. get it that all that often. And a lot of times it, it had to come from like a natural source, right? Or in a cold area where you could mm-hmm. you could maintain it. And so the the company at the time said, actually, yes, that's a great idea. And so the the brand Sapporo was born. And before we talk about the beer itself, just on face value, not knowing much about it, what do you think about this beer? I love this beer because it's like a really light beer and it's, first of all, cheap, which is amazing. And it's a delicious cheap beer. Like there's no weird aftertaste that makes you regret drinking it. Yeah. Well, and that's what's kind of unfortunate is when we think of domestic macro lagers like this that are kind of modeled after that clean German style flavor, they do tend to have like this adjuncty gross finish. And by macro lager, it's like name them because they're pretty much, there are a couple exceptions, but they're all pretty, pretty like danky beer. And this is in the same price vein, maybe a few dollars more for a 12 pack. And it's, I think 10 times kind of cleaner all around. You still get that malt flavor, that nice hot brightness. Now, I, I will be honest, Sapporo is a brewery, but they also, they're involved in real estate. They're involved in food and restaurants and stuff. So it's not like this artisanal yeah. macro brewery in the least. Yeah. But Sapporo's been to space. They actually sent barley into space and, you know, to like develop, wow. see how it developed. And there was like some food conservation thing. They brought it back. They made a beer, a space beer out of like the grains that had been to space. <laughs> so like, it's not like they're like this. Yeah. Artis- and they, but they actually, they uh, sold it in a lottery to Japanese people that lived in country. And then all of the proceeds went to charity, which was kind of cool. Wow. But yeah, they're, they're like, I think out of all of the macro loggers of the world, Sapporo's kind of one of the best. Yeah. I'm not saying that it's the, and there's actually, I'm pretty certain that there's some like, because they have a beer called Sapporo Reserve. 
Well, okay. they don't age the fucking lager, right? So it's reserve what? And it's a, <laughs> it's an all malt beer. So hmm. to me, that means if it's an all malt product, like meaning malted barley, malted maybe a little wheat or something, but grains, if it's not all malt, then what is this? Yeah. Probably <laughs> mostly malt, but there could be some like, you know, malt syrup. There could hmm. be some adjunct of some type. Yeah. So. I don't know, but I think it's a delicious little light lager, easy drinking. Very much, yeah. It is so inoffensive, you know? Yeah. It's like sometimes cheap beer, you're just like, really? You sell people this? But Sapporo, it's like, yeah, all right. I did want to make mention that, you know, as we talk about consolidation, the Sapporo, as delicious as it is, exact same recipe as Japan. It's brewed in Canada and Ontario. Whoa. And there's a company out of La Crosse that's Sapporo. They do a lot of the importing for this region, and that's how we have this beer, thanks to <laughs> Japanese know-how and recipe. Yeah. That hails from Germany, yet it's brewed in Ontario. <laughs> so is that kind of similar to Guinness? Because I know the Guinness that we drink here in America is not brewed in Dublin, correct? I think it depends on where you live because okay. there, there's a, I think the one that if you get it in the nitro can here, that's brewed in Dublin, but oh, okay. the, the export, the foreign export Guinness, which is a little bit closer to the original recipe and a little stronger, I think that one is brewed in Canada, gotcha. um, but yet it is not d dissimilar. It's a very similar idea and there's a lot of Guinness to be made. There's a lot of Sapporo to be made, so they can be brewed elsewhere. Speaking of consolidation that I spoke of earlier, Pilsner, Urkel, and Asahi, mm -hmm. Sapporo owns America's oldest craft brewery. Who's surprisingly, that? who's that? Anchor Steam. What really? In eight in in eighteen seventeen, I was gonna say, <laughs> <laughs> just make uh -huh. it up a date. In two thousand seventeen, <laughs> Anchor Brewing was bought out by Sapporo for eighty five mil. Wow, that's amazing. I know that brewer who started that whole project was like. Cha-ching. That's what they yeah. all are hoping for. That happened to Ballast Point. They were bought out by like, wow. I don't remember, InBev or something for like a billion dollars or something. That's insane. Wow. That's amazing. When we drink these macro lagers, I've been asked before, because I've done some classes on, you know, Japanese beverages in the past at different different locations, and people ask like, well, why is there a craft beer scene? And why don't we see more craft breweries coming out of Japan? And the five brands got so popular, just like gin was heavily taxed, and they put a lot of laws in place so that the little guys couldn't perform yep. in the business. In the Japanese brewing world, that's no different. Around 19, I want to say 06 or 08 or something like that, there was a change to the beer tax law and it made the minimum quantity of beer necessary to be produced in order to get a manufacturing license. Mm -hmm. It increased to 47,000 gallons of beer. So for those of you that work in the beer business and you shuffle around kegs, that's 3,000 half barrels of beer, which mm. that's a lot. That's a lot of kegs for a, just a- For a small guy Yep, especially yeah. especially in 1908, for God's sake, yeah. you know? So now you fast forward, you know, 30 years or so, and the quantity increased tenfold in 1940, like to around 500 and 20 some thousand gallons, which means 
Now the minimum is instead of 3,000 something, it's 34,000 half barrels. Wow. So who's making... Who's in bed with each other? Yeah. You know? Bummer. So, I mean, in some ways, that sucks because Sapporo's like crushing the little guys. Can or, people homebrew legally? Right now in Japan, it's illegal to homebrew, but people homebrew. Sure. I mean, yeah. there, there are like shops dedicated to homebrew equipment. Equip- okay. Yeah. So, you so just, it's not like a felony or anything. Uh, like well, that. I think it, I think technically it's illegal. Yeah. But I okay. don't know to what extent. Maybe okay. they give you a fine. Maybe they take all your supplies or something like that. Yeah. One thing though is this did get better. A brighter change was definitely in store for smaller brewers dreams because in 1994, the minimum requirement was lowered drastically down to about 15,000 gallons. So this is okay. like about 2,000 half barrels. So in a time where people are drinking a lot more, there's an increased population, people know how to invest together. Now that 34,000 or back when it was 3,000, now we're well below that at 2,000 half barrels of beer to be able to start nice. a business. So nice. especially in a world with a lot of export, that makes it easier for people. Yep. We're going to listen to next an instrument called the Hichiriki which is a sham. So you remember how I told you that a koto was a zither? Mm-hmm. Uh, a sham is an instrument with a double reed, kind of like an oboe, okay? okay? Yep. A precursor to an oboe. And so the hichiriki has a double reed like that, of course made of bamboo, and then the instrument itself has seven holes on the top, and is held. it's held like an oboe, too. Okay. So there's seven holes on the top and two holes on the back. Which, you know, for your thumbs. It is also an instrument that's part of the Gagaku Ensemble. And often it's heard pretty early on. So Gagaku Ensembles, as I mentioned, were palace musicians. And commoners didn't get to hear those instruments. And this music that they would play... In these ceremonies, it's very ceremonial music. It's so much less about harmony than it is about the timbre, the quality of the sound, and what does the sound mean. It's about the, that quality of the sound rather than the overall harmony, like when we think of Western music. Yep. It's so harmony-based. Yeah. Uh, some of it anyway. So when you hear the instrument, the hichiriki, you're either hearing it in a gagaku ensemble. It's also very common at Shinto weddings. And the whole instrument- Oh, Shinto weddings? Yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to- I'm, The more I learn about Shintoism, the more I'm kind of enamored with it. Yeah. But the idea of getting married under the Shinto umbrella, knowing that it's technically not a religion, that's fascinating. Do you know anything about that that you can tell me right now? Nope. Okay, never mind. Keep going. <laughs> Keep going. The interesting thing about the Hichiriki, the Hichiriki is, as I mentioned, very much like an oboe. Kind of doesn't sound very oboe-ish. We'll hear it in a minute. But the, in a gagaku ensemble, there are wind instruments, string instruments, and percussion instruments. There's no brass instruments. So the hichiriki is one of the wind instruments. And then they also have several flutes. They have the sho, which we talked about in Japan part one, and we're going to talk about again a little bit later today because it's like my favorite (laughs) Japanese (laughs) instrument. So those are all, uh, there are several winds. There are usually about 20 people in a gagaku ensemble. And each player is required to know how to play all the instruments, 
which I think is super badass. I think that would make it so fascinating to play and study and I don't know. But anyway, the Hichiriki part of that wind family uh, of, and we'll then talk about some of the uh, string instruments like the koto, although it's also got another name in Japan, but in any event, the koto part of the string family of the gagaku ensemble. The hichiriki can do interesting things with pitch as well because the holes on top and back, the holes in the instrument are all open and that allows you to bend the pitch with fingers. Meaning like when you only cover up the note halfway or a quarter of the way, the hole, meaning that? Okay. Yep. But also the reed of the double reed of the hichiriki is kind of large. It's much bigger than an oboe reed and much wider than a bassoon reed. Mm. And there are many things that hichiriki players do with their embouchure, which is the muscles in their mouth uh, that they're using to perform. They can use that to bend the pitch as well and manipulate pitch. And that is a very common technique that you hear in uh, the playing of hichiriki. The way that they articulate, so when you learn a musical instrument that takes wind to play, like a trumpet or a flute, you learn how to articulate. So to make the sound go ta-ta-ta-ta-ta instead of just ha-ha-ha-ha-ha or whatever with your breath. So we call that articulation. And with a hichiriki, there really isn't articulation. It's all done with pitch bending. Now, modern players can do, I mean, modern everything, there's breaking all the rules, right? But traditionally speaking, players of that instrument Uh, do articulation with pitch bending, which is a unique approach. So here's an example of the hichiriki in a gagaku ensemble. And you'll hear when it starts, just there's a lot of note bending. That poor flute in the background is just trying to compete. <laughs> yeah. You can also hear the show playing mm-hmm. in the background. The hichiriki is that, um, just in case you're not sure which one you're hearing, it's it's the very prominent, reedy-sounding... There's a koto... Mm-hmm. Now, we've talked about this one other time on Scores and Pores because I really appreciate that we're listening to that. Sometimes that instrument sounds almost like it's on its own with a couple, with just like the flute in the background or something. And then we get, you know, the kota comes and we got this percussion, right? This kind yep. of building. Now, you'd mentioned one other time, a few other times on Scores and Pours, that this idea of being in tune is yeah. a, a very a different idea depending on the culture that you're in, the music that you're listening to, right? And because yeah. I noticed a, a point a few, I don't, I don't even want to say measures ago, maybe 45 seconds ago, where it, I was like, yikes, is that out of tune? They all kind <laughs> of bended in a way that... Yep. Now... Am I right to assume that in this specific gagaku ensemble, 
that's not a bad thing. Yeah, it's not about that. Okay. You know, it's just, it's whatever story they're telling musically. Okay. And someone well-versed in Gagaku could look at the title of this and be like, oh, well, this is this. Because it's very specific ceremonial music and has important roles. Like, it's not random, you yeah. know? I mean, everything is tremendously meaningful, what they're doing. And that's what matters. Well, that's cool. Now I just want to be part of the ceremony. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've i seen Gagaku once, and it's absolutely amazing. It's amazing. And there are lots of opportunities, pandemic aside, to go places and see Gagaku music. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's been exported. There are concerts all around the world yeah. all the time. So. Oh, gorgeous, gorgeous. Yep. See, I really love this kind of... I think that that, to, me, to my ear, that sounds really pleasing. Now, do mm-hmm. I want to listen to that... You know, six hours a day, no, but I don't want to listen to anything six hours mm-hmm, a day except mm-hmm. for maybe Madonna during Pride or something. But I mean, that's, <laughs> that's an aside. Um, yeah. I, but I don't really, I don't know, I just don't, I think that that sounds so incredibly enriching, pretty, mm-hmm. and like meaningful. Like you want to be, you're actively listening to that. You're not listening yeah. to that while you're like frying an egg. And trying to have a conversation with a friend on the phone, you know, yeah. you're like giving it your yes. attention, which is. Mm-hmm. Do you want to give some beer your attention? Always. So finish that Sapporo in your glass, because we're about to talk about microbrews. Nice. Surprisingly. Sweet. As I said, they hardly exist in Japan. It's true, but they do. It's not dissimilar to the U.S. craft beer scene, where small breweries usually grow around a local community of sorts and rely on that local community for growth and for support. And in Japan, it depends on the source you consult, but there are about two to 300 microbreweries a percentage of this two to 300, they lie in this sort of middle ground. I don't want to say that they're nearly as big as a Sapporo Asahi Endeavor, right? Or, mm-hmm. or Kirin Ichiban, but they're part of a, you know, maybe a hotel chain that has a microbrewery, like Granite Rock, I think is one around Minneapolis, right? Or, or Rock Bottom Brewery. Um, it's like a chain of restaurants, but that they do brew their own beer. So they are small, they are yeah. a microbrewery of sorts. And Almost, I think all five of the macro breweries that I talked about are trying to like weasel their way in in some way, shape, or form. Kirin uh, Ichiban, they just came out with a hoppier beer that uh, is featuring a local Japanese hop called Toretate. You know, so go figure, because then, then anybody that is like me, I would see that and I'd be like, oh, I want to try that. Yeah. And then there I go spending my money for a six-pack, and that's taken it away from the little guys, right? Um, Which kind of sucks. But true craft beer, like very small microbrews, represent about 1% to 2% of consumption in Japan. So that's how small... Do you know what it is here? I don't. I know that it's not as big as we would think because we, you know, like I know that I haven't bought a macrobrewery 
that's domestic in I can't tell you how long. Yeah. <laughs> but there are for every one of me, there are five hundred that do, right? So yeah. but then then all my friends don't do that either. But right. we're yeah. a small group, right? Okay. But before we get to drinking this beer with an owl on it, one of my favorites in the world, wow. we're gonna talk about a microbrewery that started in the mid nineteen nineties called Coedo with a C. And this brewery is one of my favorites in Japan because um, they're really German in execution. They actually hired a German native to come and help them learn to brew. And so the the beers are so precise, yet a lot of them are utilizing Japanese hops and like they have a Hefeweizen, they've got a Schwarz beer, so like a dark lager, but their claim to fame is this beer called Beniaka. And Beniaka is made out of, it's an imperial sweet potato ale. Whoa. Um, eat a lot of packed sugars that fermentable sugars and sweet potato. And so I think, yes, there's there are hops, there's malt, obviously, but it's really cool that they're using local sweet potatoes to make this beer. And they're in this really up and coming like foodie area around Tokyo, I think. I don't know. They're just a cool endeavor to look up if you live on the coast because it sweet. is available in New York. There's a brewery called Kizakura who they kind of, I think that I've seen them here in the States before. I've had them overseas for sure, but they have a matcha IPA. So an IPA made with green tea, um, which is really cool. But let's crack right into Kiuchi. So Kiuchi is, they've been around ever since about 1823 making sake. They make soju. So the distilled like a distillate from rice can be made from barley, can be made from sweet potatoes, chestnuts, okay. kind of the sky's limit. They make wine. They make omeshu, so an alcohol that's steeped with ume plums and sugar. Mm. But in 1996, they saw a market for craft beer and said, so they're sort of in this, I think, middle ground. They're a bit more towards craft than macro for sure. Yeah. But, you know, they make other things. That's how... They, they make a lot of their money, especially probably in-country, and then outside of Japan, this is their main export that I know because I see it anywhere you see good beer. Let me pour you some. They're brewing in Nukada, which is in the Ibaraki prefecture, so we're northeast of Tokyo, kind of close to the water. And this is their Saison du Japan. Why is this beer so cool? Number one, it's a Saison, one of my favorite styles in the world. Japanese beer, when it's done well, is so interesting. This is done with koji mold, which if you listen to episode number one of our part one, part two series on Japan, part one we talked about uh, sake and we talked about koji mold bringing a lot of acidity to the the sake world and sake package and creating really interesting aromatics and they actually put koji in this beer during the first fermentation and then they use sake yeast as well for that first fermentation which gives a really really interesting nose and not necessarily a super like uber fruity package that you sometimes can get in saisons, um, like really citrusy and, and so forth. Then for the second fermentation to create the bubbles in the bottle, they used a Belgian yeast strand. And there you do get a little bit more of those Belgian esters, but really it's about the sake yeast and the Belgian yeast just adds a little more complexity and of course the carbonation. 
And then they decided to add a touch of yuzu juice in at the end of the fermentation to just keep the beer really fresh and really fragrant and really pretty and zesty. Yuzu, you kind of find it often in some Japanese beers. It's much like citra hops right now are all the rage in microbreweries here in the States and craft beer. Yuzu um, can add just a really fun citrusy dimension and it really does on the finish to this beer. I love that it's just ever so slightly like it's fruity. Yeah. But it's also a little bit ashy. Yes. It tastes smoky and also tastes I can taste the koji for sure. You think so? How do you taste the like what what does it's got that, that taste moldy like to you? taste? Mm. Yeah. That I remember from the sake. It's so funny cuz you call it moldy and I call it pearly. Like to me it tastes like pearl pearls. And I remember telling you, I'm like, you know, like if pearls were not like marine, but like if they had a flavor and you're like, yeah, sure. I'm like iridescence, like how iridescence tastes. And you looked at me from the booth like Jill's high and it tastes like mold. Yeah. And not, and I said this about the sake too. It's not off-putting like that. You know, it's just, I just taste that penicillin-y kind of. I could see the penicillin-y thing for sure. How do you think, what do you think about the colors? Definitely darker. It's unfiltered. Looks like that. Yeah, it's Sapporo. a dark golden kind of honey. Yeah, it does color. look like that. Yeah, yeah, basswood honey or something. What do you think? I think the bubbles are so fine. They're so yeah. like creamy. Yeah, it's almost like a nitro kind of feel to me. Almost, yeah. Without yeah. being like lactic in any right. way. Right. Yeah. Here, um, numb. I know it's so good. Five percent alcohol, so just perfect to be able to have a couple and not worry about it. This is from the Kyuchi Brewery. Um, hops are using pearl hops, P E R L E, Kent Golding hops. They're using Pacifica and Hallertau, and Hallertau is a very famous German hop that gives just this nice bite without being super aromatic. And Golding, very typical in a lot of like English ales. Mm-hmm. I just think it's just such a well-made beer. That koji really is special. It is, and it's very balanced. It's not too much of any one of those things. It's just nice and pleasant. And yeah. why does this beer? You know, why Why does 75% of the population not buy this beer? Because it's 11.2 ounces, 5% alcohol, and it's four ninety nine a bottle. Wow. So Here, get, though, what does it cost there, I want to know? Probably seven ninety nine a bottle because it's in yen. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but I just, I think that people yeah. multiply that by 24. Yeah. It's expensive. Yep. But I think it's worth it because I'm only going to drink one or two. I don't need to sit down and drink six. Yeah, yeah. And I don't have kids. Right. And I prioritize beer. <laughs> As I like squig some. To Kiyuchi. I would be remiss if I didn't say Hitachino. The brewery is known for their Hitachino Nest beers. So I know them as Kiyuchi because I call them by their brewery name, but the name of the set of beers that they make is Hitachino Nest. Okay. Um, just a little, a little aside in case you go shopping. Love that. Smart you, if you listeners. So you know what instrument's not in a Gagaku ensemble? Mm-mm. Shakuhachi flute. Isn't that well, weird? Yeah, they kicked it's it so out. weird. We talked about Shakuhachi oh, they, they a little. they kicked it out? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they weren't drinking enough craft beer, so they did that. <laughs> I don't know why. I know there, I can promise you there's a reason, and it probably has to do with whichever dynasty just didn't like Shakuhachi or whatever, and so they didn't want it, and it never came back. For a while, there was no Gagaku at all. 
So that got revived as well uh, later. Uh, but another instrument that is very Japanese and not in a gagaku ensemble is the shamisen. And we talked about shamisen uh, just a few moments ago when I was telling you about the blind player who learned the koto. His original instrument was the shamisen. Shamisen is a lute, so that means it's kind of an instrument-ish, like guitar-ish, in that it's got a long neck and some kind of little body that resonates the strings, and you hold it kind of like a guitar or a lute or a banjo or a mandolin or any kind of lute-like instrument. Shamisen is kind of tiny, though, in comparison. The body itself is usually square-ish or rectangular, and then the strings stretch all the way down a very long neck, and there are only three strings. The person who's playing, your right hand has a big, huge plectrum in it, and we talked about that also last week in part one with the biwa, another Japanese lute. Basically looks like a big ice scraper. Instead of a normal guitar pick, it's a, a big, kind of triangular-ish widespreading on this instrument on this instrument that's played to strike the strings and pluck the strings. Do we have a video of that for listeners too? hundred percent. Cool. What the person wears on their left hand, their index finger gets this little tiny knit sweater. <laughs> I just love, and they wear this cloth over that finger and it wraps around the thumb so that their hand can slide up and down the fretboard, even though there's no frets, it can slide up and down the neck with much more ease because otherwise it could stick, you know? I mm -hmm. mean, so you put this little piece of cloth around your finger and then you can move very quickly. So shamisen is an amazing instrument. And again, just having three strings and the virtuosic shamisen players will blow your mind. So let's hear some shamisen. This is another instrument that you're going to hear and you're going to be like, wow, I've heard that a billion times. This is like the shakuhachi. This is so closely associated with Japanese music. Like you hear this and you go there right away. Yes. The previous instrument, I, I don't know if I would do that. I'd go somewhere in Asia, but I don't know where. With I, the hichiriki? Yep. Mm -hmm. I don't know where yep. I would go necessarily. But this, I'm like, those islands. Yes. Same with the shakuhachi. Those islands, yep. you know. And the koto as well. I think yep. if you hear koto, you think Japan for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I love shamisen. It's great. And again, it's all over everything. how percussive it is that's mm -hmm. because of the big plectrum it's played with 
which is called a bachi. So those are the instruments I wanted to highlight today. And then I want to share with you some uh, composers that uh, were influenced by these sounds, particularly gagaku, so not necessarily shamisen, but uh, but yeah, that's... Again, percussive, maybe a little abrupt for some ears and maybe a little coarse for some ears, but at just nothing but adoration for this music. Like, I just oh, it's love amazing. it. amazing. Yeah. You know what else I have adoration for? Beer. Yeah. Some beer. So you get that moldy essence, right? I get from the Saison de Japan, mm-hmm. I get like this um, like this sour, a little sour quality to it. Yeah. I think honestly, if I hadn't had sake so much over the last, not that I was tipping back sake left and right, but I've had it enough over the last few weeks that there's been this Japan craze happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that it's like... I know every really, time I come over to edit or record the studio, I bring the sake from the last week or the week before or the week before because I cracked it open earlier than the episode so I could go tasting it right along mm-hmm. the days and mm-hmm. we tasted it with ramen. And so then I brought, I bring it back. I'm like, here, do you want to taste it? Look at how it's yeah. evolving. Whoa, I can't believe it. Yeah. So you've had your fair share of sake in the last yeah. few weeks. And it just I can just taste that same profile. You know? The pearls. The pearls. No. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so give this a smell because we'll taste this next to probably the most famous Japanese, if I am going to utter it, craft beer there is. Okay. Yum. Love it. Good job. Saison to Japan. So this is Kyuchi Hitachino Nest White Ale. So same brewery. Same brewery. The Hitachino White Ale has won so many awards for its profile and flavor and what it, its appearance. When you are scrolling through their website, you get sick of looking at how many Canadian Beer Summit, International <laughs> Beer Festival in the United States won a gold medal for this style. Wow. A white beer is the same as a, a wit beer. So it's it's um, emulating like a Belgian style wit where it's brewed with mostly wheat, both malted and flaked. And then it's also brewed with coriander. There's a little bit of orange peel, sometimes orange juice, nutmeg. It's like a spiced, unfiltered ale, usually unfiltered. And this is done with, it's 5.5% alcohol, done with a lot of the same hops, pearl, goldings, but there's also some styrian. There's some Amarillo hops, so a little bit more on the American side. When you smell it, it smells like just that wheat, a little coriander, a little nutmeg. A little perfumey, I think. Yeah, exactly. That's that's a very classic white ale is like perfumed in the kind of spice, but also mm-hmm. the citrus okay. department. Notice that it is unfiltered. Oh, yeah. It's also very dark golden. It is. It's a little bit lighter than the other yeah. one, I think. Just a, the one hue lighter. Like instead of it being gold, it's maybe like kind of burnt yellow. It honestly looks a little bit like if someone went to the bathroom and then, but they hadn't had water in like two days. You know, it's like, it's <laughs> I very was thinking like, more, it looks like blue moon then. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Blue moon. Sure. That's fine. I don't mean any disrespect. I'm just saying yeah, it's no, a I color. Know, that was great. It's true. It's very true. Well, that's nice and f- citrusy at the end. Mm-hmm. And mm. just a little bit thick. Yeah. Just, just the ever so slightly thick because it's unfiltered. Mm. I could put down a sixer of that around a fire. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Jesus. 
<laughs> comes in four packs. So okay. <laughs> sorry, four or eight. Even easier. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just a really, I think it's a really pretty beer that really put them on the map for quality because they make some pretty awesome stuff. They have a beer, I think it's called XH, and it's a, a higher alcohol beer that's aged in soshu barrels. They do a red rice ale. They do one with local plums and one that's spiked with uh, yuzu, a lager that's spiked with yuzu, a fruit that's native to Japan. And all the beers are winners. Like I've never had a beer from Hitachino slash Kyuchi that I've been like, my, I'm not really into this. They're all really great. They have gotten to a point where in the next, if they keep growing, they're going to need to choose, right? Like do we lose flavor and get bigger or do we kind of stay the size and do our sake and do our beer and we're good. Yeah. Um, but I think they're some of the best in Japan. They really care about what they're doing. On their website, they have a really cool little space dedicated to what they were going to choose for their emblem. And it was going to be like a monkfish as opposed to their very famous owl okay. on their cans and bottles. And the monkfish, it just looked like nobody's going to buy that. Really? Even though it's so great, but monkfish is a, a delicacy in that area. Okay. So they were like, wanted to celebrate yeah. that. And <laughs> their marketers were probably like, no. Um, yeah, they're just a, they're a cool outfit. They seem very passionate and their beers are reflective of that. Neat. So Well, the influence last week that we talked about of Western music on Eastern composers, now we're going to talk about some Western composers that were influenced by uh, Eastern instruments and music. And it's a who's who of the 20th century in terms of uh, composers, especially forward-thinking composers who were innovating in their own ways, like Lamont Young, who was one of the earliest uh, and usually is credited with writing some of the first minimalist compositions. Lamont Young was very influenced by Gagaku and wrote lots of music that uh, reflects that in some way, shape, or form. Olivier Messiaen, who we've talked about on the show before. Alan Hovannis, we will 100% spend time on him. It's crazy we haven't talked about him yet, but we'll get to Alan Hovannis someday. He wrote a lot and was actually trained by formal Gagaku teachers to learn the instruments. Lou Harrison, who's a composer that actually has shown up in our patron-only content before. Benjamin Britten, who's a British composer. American composer John Cage, heavily influenced by Gagaku music. So lots of people. Music. Lots of people. And that's just a, that's a very brief list. There are many, many composers. Uh, we also will hear music from Sarah Peebles. Sarah actually was born here in Minnesota, but she now is Canadian and is a composer, but also an artist and other things, but she has written a lot of music for the show, the Japanese show, which oh, cool. we talked about last week. And so we'll listen to a little show music as we uh, cheers Japan one more time. That sounds great. I feel like I've been really influenced by this music as well because I feel like as a Libra, I, I don't want to say I have a fiery personality, but I have like a lot of ups and then I have a lot of downs, right? And like the goal, I think the goal of my life as an, as, a, as Libra is like you want to like have the balance where the highs are good, but they're not like so up there that then the lows, you got to have those too, right? I'd rather yeah. just kind of have everything be a little more even keel. And this music for me really helps that. And that's a big part of who I am is like trying to find this balance mm -hmm. and this is... I think this music is perfect for that, even though obviously it's meant for other reasons, celebratory, ceremonial. Yeah. But when I listen to it, it, it kind of brings, brings me to a, 
a place in the middle, which is very mm-hmm. peaceful for my ear. Yeah. Well, let's listen so to does some the beer too. Sarah Peebles really quick. Yeah, let's yeah. do it. Just a super brief recap that a show is like the ittiest, bittiest, tiniest little pipe organ. And it's sort of, you can inhale and exhale a la a harmonica. You know how if you blow in or out on a harmonica, you hear sound? Show is the same way. And I just think it's one of the most beautiful, delicate instruments in the entire world. So here's a piece called Resinous Fold 7 for Smoke by Sarah Peebles, written for the show. Here's to a Minnesotan getting it with the show. (laughs) Cheers. Scores and pours. Scores and pours. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Emily Reese and Jill Mott. You can find links and information about this episode and support us financially Thanks to all of our patrons at patreon.com slash scores and pours. That's where you'll also find a link to our merchandise. And we're on Instagram at scores and pours. You can send us a DM. Let us know if you've got any show ideas or questions. We'd be uh, happy to hear from you. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Jill Mott and Emily Reese. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. Joe. June, little kitty.